Uh, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open, ac- uh, open up to Acts chapter 17. And uh, because yesterday was a crazy long day, I'm a little bit tired. And so when I was driving over this morning, I felt like I had three things I wanted to share with you. And God was like, actually, I just want you to share two things. And I was like, all right, I'm good with two things because that's a little bit easier than three. So I'm shortening this message because I really felt compelled or convicted Rather than running through all of Acts 17, there's two things specifically that I wanted to share with you this morning. Um, As we've been, we're in uh, Acts 17, we find ourselves with the Apostle Paul. He's in his second missionary journey. Last week, we found that Paul landed in Europe uh, and was met with some amazing things that God was doing, but also met with great opposition. And one of the things that I don't want us to lose sight of as we walk through Acts, uh, the story of Acts, is the men and women that the Apostle Paul is meeting, the men and women that the Apostle Paul is interacting with. Uh, And it really can be summed up, there's two different types of people. Uh, There's one person who would be men and women who were just Jewish people. Uh, They grew up Jewish, they grew up Jewish mindset, the Jewish culture. Uh, And two things that you would need to know if you grew up in a Jewish background, Jewish heritage, Jewish family, Jewish culture, is there was really only one way to relate with God, and it was through works. It was through observance uh, of the law. Uh, And the second thing I would want you to know about Jewish mindset, spiritually speaking, is that they believed that one day God was going to send a Savior, a Messiah, a Redeemer. But because hundreds hundreds and hundreds of years had passed... Most people from a Jewish background, they just gave up. They stopped believing because too much time had passed that a Savior or Messiah was actually coming. So their mindset was the way that I connect, understand, relate with God is through my works, through my performance, through observing the law. If you were not Jewish, then the second category of person is that you would be Gentile. And if you were Gentile, you were growing up inundated, as it were, in Roman culture, Roman mindset. Roman mindset culture dominated the day. And the two things that if you are Gentile growing up in a Roman uh, culture is two things. Caesar's God. Caesar is God. He was ruler. He's supreme. And he is not to be defied. Because if you defied Caesar, what he said and what he wanted to be done, uh, that would be the end of you. And so whoever was the emperor of the time was viewed as God. So if you're Gentile, that's your understanding of God is whoever happens to be Emperor Caesar is God. Also in the Roman mindset, Roman culture, is that there is not just one God, there is a pantheon of gods, thousands and thousands upon thousands of different gods and goddesses. And so the way that you would relate and understand and connect with is figure out, well, which God lives in this space and what am I supposed to do to appease them? In a great book, I encourage you to, if you're looking for a challenging read, is a book by Glenn Sunshine called Why You Think the Way You Do. Uh, And he gave a great picture of uh, the Gentile mindset growing up in a Roman culture. And he said this, the primary function of religion was to keep the gods happy so they did not destroy the people. And for the more benign gods, the more uh, favorable gods, as it were, to encourage them to help the people by blessing the natural world. For the overwhelming majority of worshipers, the gods were feared, not loved. And so I I don't want you to lose sight of who the men and women that Paul is interacting with. You're either Jew, growing up in a a Roman-occupied area, 
or you're Gentile. And so we've got a diversity of people. All these men and women have different ideas about who God is and what God is like and how they can connect, understand, and relate with God. And I would say, gosh, that's pretty similar to our day. I I promise you there's many of us in here today that have lots of ideas of how we are to understand God, how we're to relate with God, how we are to connect with God. Um, And so our culture, honestly, is not very different from the culture of the men and women that the Apostle Paul was meeting on his travels. But what I love about the Apostle Paul is that he did not just go from town to town and expect people to believe what he said because he said it. Paul did not expect nor desire nor want people to believe what he said just because I'm the Apostle Paul. I said it, therefore you should just swallow it wholeheartedly. What I am challenged, inspired, and love about what Paul did as he traveled from town to town is he sought to reason with people. He sought to reason with people. So in every town Paul spoke, the audience was forced to wrestle with the question, and it's the question that I want us to wrestle with today, is it reasonable to believe in Jesus and the gospel message? Is it a reasonable thing to believe? Is it a reasonable thing to base your faith, ultimately, your life upon? And just a quick definition of how I'm defining reasonable is an action, fact, or an event that leads to a basis for belief. Okay? So this morning, I really want you, I'm going to challenge you, and I want to challenge you with, uh, is it reasonable to believe what you believe? Not just because of what I'm encouraging you towards, but because you've examined it. You've weighed the evidence. You've thoughtfully thought through these things and come to the conclusion, it is reasonable for me to declare that the gospel is a reasonable gospel. Now, I'm going to read something to you, and I want you to listen to this through the frame of mind of, is this reasonable to actually believe this? Or does this just sound crazy? Is this crazy talk, or is this actually reasonable to believe? So, is it reasonable to believe that God came to earth in flesh, born as a baby, to a young virgin named Mary? And this infant, Jesus, lived a perfect life without sin, teaching people about God, performing countless miracles over nature, over sickness, even raising some from the dead. Then around the age of 30, was condemned to die on a cross, a death that paid the penalty for the sins of the whole world. But against all odds, Jesus rose from the grave, appearing to hundreds of witnesses, and before returning back to heaven, Jesus entrusted to his band of followers a mission and a message to go tell the world that if they too believe in him, all their sins would be forgiven and they will spend eternity with him in heaven. Is that really reasonable to believe? Is it reasonable to believe that God stepped out of where God is into his creation and came as an infant, born as a baby. Let's be honest. Does that sound a bit crazy? You mean to tell me that God who created everything actually stepped into his creation as an infant, as a baby, born of a virgin? Because I can hear about his teachings and his miracles and all of the things that he did, but you kind of lost me at the beginning of God stepped into creation as a man. 
Is that reasonable to believe? Because if you're a Christian, what I just read is a pretty good description of Christianity, of what it means to be a Christian. We believe that God came. We believe that Jesus is God in flesh. We believe what Jesus, what he taught, how he lived. We believe his death, his resurrection. But if you just sit with it for a second, is it reasonable to believe that? Now, let's be honest. I think the biggest criticism of Christians and Christianity is that we have checked our brain at the door. It is a mindless exercise in faith. It makes you feel good. It makes you kind of feel fuzzy. It resonates with your heart. But I think the criticism of Christians and Christianity is it's a myth. It's fairy tales. It's made up for people who need something to believe in. This is certainly not a reasonable faith. All right, so let's have some participation by show of hands. Uh, How many people here believe that Abraham Lincoln, the 16th president of the United States, actually existed? Show of hands. All right, Abraham Lincoln, 16th president, was a real person. You all, it looked like everyone raised their hands. All right, so since we're having so much fun, how many people here actually met Abraham Lincoln? Please raise your hands. All right, well, this is a bit strange for me, because all of you, let me re-ask the question, how many people really believe that Abraham Lincoln, 16th president of the United States, was a real person? I ask that, you all raise your hands. But yet when I ask you, did any of you actually meet him? None of you raise your hands. So either my estimation of you is you're crazy, how do you tell me that you believe in someone that you've never met, that you've never seen? I think most of you would come back at me and say, well, Michael, there's eyewitness testimony of the existence of Abraham Lincoln. Okay. Do you know, have you, did you meet those eyewitnesses? Do you know those eyewitnesses? Do you know anybody who actually physically shook hands with a man named Abraham Lincoln? I think most of you would say, no, I haven't. But yet you're making a decision and saying it's reasonable to believe that Abraham Lincoln actually existed, even though I'm just basing that off of eyewitness testimonies. Now, here's my point. The major difference we have here, Abraham Lincoln, he never claimed to be God. He didn't tell people that if they believed in him, that all sins would be forgiven and that they would have a home in heaven for eternity. Abe Lincoln never claimed to be God. Good president, but never claimed to be God. So my point is, if it would be reasonable to believe Uh, in Jesus and the gospel message, the burden of evidence, it better be overwhelming. Because Jesus said he was God. Jesus said the only way that you can have sins forgiven, peace, heaven, is through faith in me. So if that's true, the evidence supporting Jesus and who he said he was and what he claimed to do, it better be overwhelming. Now, Josh McDowell Uh, apologist. I love what he said here. My heart cannot rejoice in what my mind rejects. My heart cannot rejoice in what my mind, uh, cannot rejoice in what my mind rejects. My heart and head were created to work and believe together in harmony. Christ commanded us to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. 
There, there can't be a disconnect. And I think, honestly, that's what happens with a lot of men and women who say, I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Christ. I, I get it in my heart. It makes sense. In my mind, crazy. I don't, I, I, there's a disconnect. And what I love about what Josh McDowell says is, I can't rejoice. I mean, I can't worship something that I know to be true in my heart, but my mind absolutely rejects it. Ravi Zacharias, another professor, teacher, theologian, apologist, said it very well when he just simply said, what I believe in my heart must make sense in my mind. So this morning, we're gonna, I'm going to challenge you with, is the gospel a reasonable gospel? Is it reasonable to believe in Jesus and his message? And what I want to do and challenge you, we're looking at Acts chapter 17. He's traveling to two different cities. I was going to look at three different cities, but just looking at two different cities. And in one of the cities that the Apostle Paul comes to, he meets a community um, in Berea, and they're known as Bereans. And this is what he found in Berea. It says in Acts 17, verse 11, now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. This is my challenge to you. Please do not accept anything I tell you just because I'm telling you. I can tell you in all honesty and integrity, I would not say something that would intentionally lead you astray. But I want you to be able to say, I have a faith. And my faith is not rooted in just because Michael told me this, my parents told me this, my friend told me this. My faith is rooted in, I have searched, I have studied, I have examined, I have considered. And this gospel, this Jesus, it is reasonable to believe who he is, what he said, and what he did. As Paul preached about Jesus and the gospel message, he did not expect or desire people to respond to the message in blind faith, as it were. He did not expect nor want people just to blindly receive what he was telling them. And scripture makes clear that he reasoned with people pointing to the evidence of who Jesus is. Uh, Chuck Colson, uh, he passed away a few years ago uh, as an older man, but uh, he was spent many years in prison uh, for his involvement in the Watergate scandal. Uh, and it was in his prison years that he began to wrestle with faith and life and what he believed, what he didn't believe. And he began the process of examining, uh, is it reasonable to believe these things? And his conclusion was this, the Christian faith is not an irrational leap. Examined objectively, the claims of the Bible are rational propositions well supported by reason and evidence. That was his conclusion. And again, I don't want you to be like, well, Chuck examined these things and it was logical to him, so that's good enough for me. The most compelling Christians that I know are the men and women who have examined the evidence. And they've wrestled and they've come to the conclusion that it is reasonable to believe that the gospel is a reasonable gospel. Now, this morning, I'm guessing there's many people here, but there's two different types of people. There would be one type of person that would say, I believe, I really do believe. Like, I, I really believe. But if someone just pushed you a little bit and said, could you please explain to me, could you articulate to me why you believe what you believe, 
I think many here this morning would say, I, I do believe, but I can't really articulate why I believe what I believe. So please don't ask me too many questions. Please just accept at face value that in my heart, it resonates. In my heart, it makes sense. But beyond that, I, I can't explain much further than that. And my heart for you this morning, if you're here and you say, I do believe, is that you would be challenged and equipped to examine, wrestle and consider, and come to the conclusion that the gospel is a reasonable gospel. Now, I think there's another type of person that would be here that would say this, I really want to believe. I really, really want to believe. But there is such a disconnect between my head and my heart right now. It does make sense here, but here, whew, it's crazy. It's crazy to think the things that I'm thinking, but there's something in you that says, I don't want to live a divorced life. I don't want to live a divorced head and a divorced heart. I want to have a head and a heart that is in harmony. Um, the Apostle Paul, he reasoned with people because he himself was convinced that the gospel was and is a reasonable gospel. So... If you're not there yet, open up to Acts 17. Uh, I'm not going to read the entire passage, but uh, what I'm sharing with you this morning is Paul was in Macedonia, uh, then traveled to Philippi, and where we find Paul uh, this morning is he just was let out of prison, and now Paul uh, and his companions, Silas, Timothy, Luke, uh, are now traveling to Thessalonica, and then will travel also to Berea. So this is picking up the story, Acts chapter 17, verse 1. Paul and Silas then traveled through the towns of Amphilus, Amphipolis, and Apollonia, and came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was Paul's custom, he went to the synagogue service, and for three Sabbaths in a row, he used the scriptures to reason with the people. And he explained that the prophecies, he explained the prophecies and proved that the Messiah must suffer and rise from the dead. And he said, this Jesus I'm telling you about is the Messiah. Verse 4, some of the Jews who listened were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with many God-fearing Greek men and quite a few prominent women. Verse 5, but some of the Jews were jealous, and so they gathered some troublemakers from the marketplace to form a mob and start a riot. It seems everywhere Paul goes, uh, he's always... Yeah, he's, he's got uh, people who are listening, are receiving, understanding and receiving, but then he's got some people who are like, wow, I just don't like you, and I'm going to do whatever I can to get you out of here, and that's what happened in Thessalonica. Jump down to Berea, in uh, verse 10, that very night, the believers sent Paul and Silas to Berea, and when they arrived there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. And the people of Berea were more open-minded than those in Thessalonica, and they listened eagerly to Paul's message, and they searched the scriptures day after day to see if Paul and Silas were teaching truth. As a result, many Jews believed, as did many of the prominent Greek women and men. Verse 13, but when some Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God in Berea, they went there and they stirred up trouble. Uh, we're looking at about a 50-mile gap uh, between Thessalonica and uh, Berea. And the folks back in Thessalonica were like, 
hey, someone just posted on their wall that uh, Paul and Silas are now in Berea, and we don't even like them 50 miles away from us, so we're going to go stir up some trouble for them there. And what we're going to get into next week is these, this mob comes to, to find and attack Paul and his companions, and Paul makes an escape and heads to Athens. That's where we'll be next week. But the question, again, is simply this that I'm asking today. Is it reasonable? Is it reasonable for you to declare that Jesus, the gospel, his message, his mission, it's a reasonable gospel? And again, this is not the exhaustive lifts. I was going to share with you three, but it's been narrowed down to two. Two reasons that I learned from Acts 17 why the gospel is a reasonable gospel. Number one would be this. Reason number one, the scriptures. Reason number one is the scriptures. I want you to just listen one more time. This is Acts 17, verse 2. As was Paul's custom, he went to the synagogue service, and for three Sabbaths in a row, he used the scriptures to reason with the people. He used scripture to reason with people. Uh, Verse 10 and 11. When they arrived there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. That was his normal practice. And people of Berea were more open-minded than those in Thessalonica. And they listened eagerly to Paul's message. They searched the scriptures day after day to see if what Paul and Silas were teaching was the truth. Okay, time and time again, Paul took people to the scriptures. Scripture makes clear it was his custom. The first thing he would do is he would go to the Jewish synagogue and he would address the people at the synagogue from the scriptures. So my question is, why would you do that? Why is that your starting point? Why reason with people from the scriptures? Before I share with you some thoughts on why he did that uh, and why he was convinced uh, that the scriptures uh, would lead people to say this is a reasonable thing to believe, I wanted to ask you the question, are you able to reason with people using the scriptures to help people see the gospel is a reasonable gospel? Be honest. Are you in a place in your Christian faith, in your journey? I'm not talking about are you an expert theologian, Bible scholar, but would you be able to take someone who does not know Jesus, who's never heard of the gospel message, and say, hey, let me start with Scripture, and let me just walk you through Scripture, because in your mind, in your heart, in your understanding, the Scriptures would lead someone to the conclusion that this gospel is a reasonable gospel. I'm going to share with you very quickly, wow, very quickly, four reasons of why I believe Paul reasoned with people from the Scriptures. Number one would be this, the Scriptures pointed to Jesus. He was convinced, and remember, scriptures at this point in time is Old Testament. He's not quoting himself. We're talking about the Old Testament here. So he was convinced that if people would understand and read the Old Testament, they would see that the Old Testament pointed to the person of Jesus. And in fact, Jesus actually said this of himself in John chapter 5. You search the scriptures, and he's talking, the you here is uh, religious leaders, leaders. of the day, religious uh, Pharisees, teachers of the, uh, of the scriptures. You search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life, but the scriptures point to me. Paul was convinced, if I just take people through the scripture, they'll see Jesus for themselves. 
The second reason why I think Paul took and reasoned with people from the scriptures is this. The scriptures are filled with fulfilled prophecy. It's a bit of a tongue twister. The scriptures are filled with fulfilled prophecy. Now, again, there might be some debate over the exact number, but most people would say there's roughly 1,900 predictive prophecies in the scriptures. Predictive meaning someone said, this is what is going to happen next year, next century, but this is what God has declared is going to happen, and then, guess what? It happens. Looking at just Jesus alone and predictive prophecy, there's roughly 700 predictive prophecies that were fulfilled by the person of Jesus Christ. Okay, you might be like, well, I don't know, 700, that's coincidence, that's, I don't know, that's, I guess that's a lot, I don't, how do, what do I make of that? Okay, so some mathematicians, some scholars got, got together, and here's their, their, their findings. The actual mathematical probability, mathematical probability that Jesus Christ could have fulfilled even eight, just eight, okay? Not 700, but just fulfilled eight prophecies um, would be a mind-boggling tenth to the 157th power. Okay, so I was going to type out for you on this giant screen how many zeros that would be, and it just wouldn't fit. It is an astronomical number of the likelihood that just eight prophecies would be fulfilled, but yet we see Jesus fulfilled all 700. I got a letter, uh, email uh, this week from Warren Buffett. Uh, he's a friend of mine. Uh, he had a little contest uh, this week. And uh, his contest was just simply, if you can guess correctly, uh, every winner of every game in the NCAA basketball tournament, I'll give you a billion dollars. I was like, Warren, that seems very generous of you, so I will play along in your game. And I submitted to Warren my, uh, my best effort of guessing all 64 games correctly. And uh, unfortunately, if you're an Ohio State fan, uh, your bracket got blown day one. So... Shortly thereafter, I got a letter from Warren saying, uh, 15 million people had joined me in this little party, and not one person after day two of the games had been able to guess correctly. And Warren reminded me very graciously that the odds of winning his little uh, contest was one in nine quintillion. And so when I was like, nine quintillion, I, I, how many zeros is that? Uh, it's not even close to the amount of zeros of 10th to 157th. My point in telling you that is, it is astronomically impossible that one person would fulfill eight prophecies spoken thousands of years in advance, nonetheless 700. So Paul, when he's reasoning with people from Scripture, is he's convinced that Jesus Christ has fulfilled all of these prophecies, and that alone is a reasonable thing to say, that's why I'm taking people to Scripture. A third reason why Paul took people to Scripture is Scriptures offer the best explanation of understanding our reality. Now, over the years, I've met with lots of people, and they say, Michael, I just, I don't get the Bible. Like, I'd like to get the Bible, but I don't get the Bible. I try reading the Bible, it just doesn't make too much sense. And someone once explained to me, Michael, the best way to understand Scripture and, and the Bible is read it as a story. 
the story of God, and they gave me five different way, categories of how you can understand the story of Scripture, the story of God. Five different acts. Act one is God. Act two is creation. Act three is rebellion. Act four is rescue. Act five is home. Now, for some of you, you might wrestle like, Michael, I can't even talk to people about Scripture because they don't believe in Scripture. So how is it possible you start from Scripture to someone who doesn't believe in Scripture? I'm like, that's very fair. So what you do is simply just you begin asking questions. And you begin asking questions about like, hey, where did you come from? How do you understand your purpose? How do you understand meaning, significance, dignity, value, worth? How do you make sense of the mess that this world is and all the evil that happens in this world? How do you even make sense of you? And all the stuff, the complexities, the paradox, it is just you. What about like life after death? What, what's next? And when you begin asking people meaningful, thoughtful questions, and they discover, I don't have meaningful, thoughtful answers to these questions, and I should, well, hey, let me take you back through the story of Scripture, because this is where I get answers. This is where I understand in, in Act 1 who God is and what God is like and how I can relate with God. Act 2 asks the question, well, who am I? It helps me understand my origins, my purpose, my significance and value and worth. Act 3 helps me make sense of what's wrong with me. Why am I the way I am? Why am I so just filled with doubt and fear and anger at times, but yet so have times moments of joy? What's wrong with the evilness of this world? Well, when I understand Act 3, it gives me answers to what's happening in the world around me. Act 4, rescue. It gives me an answer of like, is there hope? Is there an answer to me? Is there an answer to the world that I live in? Act 5 just answers the question of, I know what's next. If I die today, I know where my eternity will be spent. Well, how do you know? The scriptures. So it's, Paul was convinced that as you walk people through the story of God, it is the best explanation of understanding our reality. Uh, the fourth thing uh, is this. Paul was convinced that the scriptures were inspired by God. He was convinced that scriptures are not just man's ideas of, here's David, here's Jeremiah, here's Moses, here's what these guys had to say. Here's their just best guess at life. I hope you connect with it. Paul was convinced that the Bible that you and I have, the scriptures that we have, are the very words of God. He was convinced that this was God's word. In 2 Timothy, Paul said it himself, all scripture is breathed out by God. What a great picture. The breath of God, the voice of God. It says, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Paul reasoned with people from the scriptures. He reasoned because he knew scriptures pointed to Jesus. The scriptures are filled with fulfilled prophecy. The scriptures offer the best explanation of our understanding of, of life and reality, and the scriptures are inspired by God. Now, Jesus and the gospel uh, are a reasonable gospel because of Scripture. Now, 
My question is, in seeking to understand the truths of Jesus in the gospel or in seeking to help others understand Jesus in the gospel, what role is Scripture playing for you? And again, I do not want you just to be like, well, Michael said there are 700 prophecies and they're all fulfilled. Check me on that. Examine the Scriptures for yourself so that you can come to a conclusion that says, I've examined the Scriptures. I'm not just the person who says, I, I, says something about the Bible, but I've never actually picked it up. I've never investigated, I've never studied, I've never read. I'm convinced that Paul knew the Old Testament, and that's why he reasoned with people from the Scriptures. And very quickly, my second reason, reason number one, he took people to the Scriptures uh, so that those who chose to believe, they'd have confidence in their faith. The second reason I share with you is a transformed life is transformation. Second reason is the transformation. Um, Paul was in Thessalonica for roughly about a month. It says that he reasoned with people three Sabbaths. So he was there roughly in this town for about three weeks. And a couple years after his uh, visit to Thessalonica, Paul sent a letter that we have as First Thessalonians. And I wanted you to hear, after being with these people for one month, how he felt about them. And I want you to hear, as I read his, a, a section of his letter to these people, I really want you to at least answer, ask the question, where did a guy get a heart like this? And it says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, you yourselves know, dear brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not a failure. You're like, well, you kind of kicked out of town by a riot, but you yourselves know, dear brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not a failure. You know how badly we had been treated at Philippi just before we came to you and how much we suffered there. Yet our God gave us the courage to declare his good news to you boldly in spite of great opposition. Verse 8, we loved you so much that we shared with you not only God's good news, but our own lives too. You could just, verse 8. We loved you so much. See, we weren't just these guys who had information to tell you and then we rolled on to the next town. We loved you so much that we didn't just tell you this is a reasonable gospel. We shared with you our lives. We loved you that much. He goes on in verse 17, dear brothers and sisters, after we were separated from you for a little while, though our hearts never left you. We tried very hard to come back because of our intense longing to see you again. I read that letter, and I'm like, that is a guy who genuinely loves people. And I'm like, wait a minute. This is Paul, and Paul used to be Saul. And Saul, before he met Jesus, hated Christians. His ambition in life was to destroy the church. How is it possible that... The same man who was seeking to murder Christians, imprison Christians, and destroy the Christian faith is now writing to these men and women about his great love and affection for them. So it is reasonable for me to say one of the reasons that the gospel is a reasonable gospel is the impact, the effect that it has on those who believe. Mark Driscoll said it uh, very well in uh, his book, The Radical Reformation. 
to transform lives of people in the church are both the greatest argument for and the greatest explanation of the gospel. Because of the gospel, because of the power of the gospel, it changed him. He was no longer the same. He was a different person. I stand before you as a guy who's got so, so long to go, so much room for growth, but I'm not the same guy I used to be. I have a long way to go, but I know I'm not the same guy. How is that possible? The gospel is changing my heart. The gospel is changing my mind. And when you have someone whose heart and mind together is being transformed, it's reasonable to say, just, just maybe, just maybe this gospel, just maybe this Jesus and this message is reasonable. Because I see not only that change and transformation in him, gosh, I see it in her. I see it in him. I see it in them. I see it in an entire community. So either these people are just whack jobs drinking way too much Kool-Aid, or maybe, just maybe, the gospel is a reasonable gospel. I would ask you, if you are a Christian, a follower of Christ, today, you've made that decision. Like Paul, do you find yourself becoming more gracious, more generous, more loving, more kind, more caring, more compassionate? Or do you find in yourself that you're hanging on to things, that you're actually getting a little bit more bitter, a little bit more unforgiving, less gracious, less kind, less compassionate. And my encouragement, my challenge to you, if you find yourself, you know, I'm a Christian, but yet I just find myself bitter, angry, annoyed, frustrated with just people. My challenge, my encouragement would you, for you would be simply this. Is the gospel and God's great love that he has for you, is it just something you've heard about, or is it actually something that has penetrated both mind and heart? Because Paul was no longer the same. I wrote it down in my journal like this. Those that receive the gospel are no longer the same. Those who once loved people in order to get something from people now love people in order to freely give to all people what's been freely given to them. I know that was a mouthful. But that was my way of just saying, we live in a world where people love people in order to get something from people. And when those people no longer give us what we want from them, we say bye-bye. But the gospel changes us to say, I'm not loving you to get something from you. I'm loving you because I have something to give to you that was given to me freely, and I just want you to have it. I don't want you to have my bitterness, my anger, my frustration, my hurt, my disappointment. God has given me this amazing love. How could I not freely share that with you? That's what transformed Paul's life. This is not just news and information. I share with you my heart, my soul, my mind. Why? Because that's what the gospel does. One last quote for you, and we'll stop with this. Many Christians, being a Christian is something they've done with their heads something they've figured out with their moral lives, something they've started to enjoy in common with friends, and so on. But that's not how it's meant to be. Being a Christian is about gazing at the God in whose image you were made 
and in love, reflecting that image out into the world. I'm convinced that the gospel is a reasonable gospel. I'm convinced of that because of the scriptures, and I'm convinced of that because of the transformation. That's just two reasons. If you allowed me to walk through all 66 books, it would be a much longer list. But just one chapter in scriptures, I am compelled, I am convinced that the gospel is a reasonable gospel. 